installment of a franchise. This is episode 40, A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, The Dream Warriors. I'm your host, Michael Kruger, and welcome to the scary October episode of Third Time's a Charm. Joining me tonight is my unofficial co-host, Brian Late Night Slumber Party Rodriguez. Uh, him and I have a whole crossover thing going on between shows this month with A Nightmare on Elm Street. I recently joined him over on his show to talk about the original movie directed by Wes Craven, a high school horror classic, perhaps. It wasn't just me, because also was my other guest tonight, my horror consultant, the invisible Dan Cologne. The three of us had an epic night of recording, and what you are about to hear is our discussion about part three. But you may also want to go listen to the A Nightmare on Elm Street episode over at High School Slumber Party as soon as that's released. Announcement time. I didn't want to save this till the end, because who knows if you're going to be here in the end. You might not, you know, listen to the end. So just want to say one or two quick things up front. This month, Joey and I will have ended our run on Hanks for the Memories, and the Tom Tom Club will be coming to an end, at least until Hanks or Cruz release another film for us to review. But, before we go, there's a lot of good stuff coming in this final month or so. This month sees the Mr. Rogers movie episode and the Battleship movie Greyhound episode, which are both going to be great episodes. So those come out on Friday, and Fridays are for fun. Haven't heard or said that in a while. Please check those out. And then afterwards, you know, those are the last films, but we still have a couple of things to wrap up. Then Joey and I have a few special wrap-up episodes, like our ranking of all of Hank's movies in order, and the always fun award show, which this year is The Golden Woodies. So please check out those episodes this month of Hank's for the Memories, and there might even be a surprise or two. Who knows? And also, when it's announced, please vote for The Golden Woodies, the Tom Hanks Awards. Tom Tom Club was great, for better and worse, and it's crazy that it's coming to an end. So much to watch between Cruz and Hanks. Joey and I aren't quite sure what projects we're going to do together next, but be on the lookout for some new Elvis movie reviews, as we still have episodes of Viva Pod Vegas to finish up. That show is on hiatus until we can record in person safely, or sooner. I can't wait to talk more Elvis with Joey, so we got that going on. It's not over yet. New show alert. Be sure to check out the next project I'm involved in. I will be joining Dan Cologne on his new show called The Monsters That Made Us, the last Friday of every month, where we will be watching and discussing all of the original 31 Universal Horror Monster movies. The first episode is the silent film classic The Phantom of the Opera from 1925. So be sure to check that out. I'll be the Fritz to his Victor. Listen to get that reference. I'm really excited for Dan. I'm really excited to be joining him on his program. So that's going to be a lot of fun. It's a new endeavor. It's going to be great. So that's all the business. And it looks like it's time to grab your no-dos, maybe a razor glove, and think up a dream power. Because one, two, Freddy's coming for you.
of Death. How I loathe them, Edgar Allan Poe. Welcome back, Dream Warriors. We have reassembled from Brian's podcast from A Nightmare on Elm Street. We are here at Third Times a Charm to talk about A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, The Dream Warriors. And with me are my Dream Warriors. First up, my horror consultant, the Invisible Dan himself, Dan of the Dead, the Dan of your dreams. Welcome back to the show. I think I'm going to steal that, Mike. Thank you. That is awesome. I got several dating profiles online. I think Dan of your dreams would be uh, perfect for that. I was just going to suggest that. I'm like, Dan, I don't know if you have a dating profile, but definitely put that in. Or I am the Wizard Master. Either one will probably work well. I thought you were the Wizard Master, Brian. (laughs) My profile default photo is me sort of smiling at the camera, but I do have like Freddy's knife glove on my right hand in the photo. So I feel like it's important to put that up front for anybody who might want to date me. Also joining me tonight, you heard his voice already, but he's my unofficial co-host, the Sandman himself, Mr. Sleep, perhaps? I don't know. Brian Late Night Rodriguez, the host of High School Slumber Party. Welcome, Brian. That's Dr. Sleep to you. Okay, Dr. Sleep. That's a title already, so I was kind of going for a little twist on that. Aren't we uh, talking about that film today? No? No, no Ewan McGregor, no Stephen King, none of that kind of stuff going on. We are back here to talk more Freddy Krueger and the Children of Elm Street. Uh, By the way, programming note, if my episode happens to come out after this one, just doesn't matter. You can listen to it. No, stop right now. Wait for Brian's episode to come out. (laughs) Listen to Brian's episode and then come back and resume this episode. It'll be soon, I promise. One thing quick, Mike, what do they say like when, uh, what does the doctor say when they're in that like safe space? Something along the lines of like, he doesn't say no bullshit here, but like, oh. Straight talk only. Yeah, straight talk only. That's what we're doing today. Straight talk only. I like it, yeah. Uh, Before we go any further though, typically I do a plot summary. This movie, there's a lot of shit going on. So I thought since this was a crossover episode with Brian's show, I would pull out the back of the DVD cover. Nice. Read that. A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. Born the bastard son of a hundred maniacs. Wow. Right out of the (laughs) gate, spoilies. Um, Like, we will come to find out that is Freddy's origin, but wow, first line on the back. Demented killer Freddy Krueger is back for fresh victims in this hallucinatory shocker, co-written by original creator Wes Craven. The last of the Elm Street kids are now at a psychiatric ward where Freddy haunts their dreams with unspeakable horrors. Their only hope is dream researcher and fellow survivor Nancy Thompson, who helps them battle the supernatural psycho on his own hellish turf. So there you go. Pretty straightforward. You know, before we get specific, we went into our general histories on the franchise back on Brian's show. Very cool. Go listen to that episode. But this movie specifically, I kind of want to know, when did you first watch this? Now, Brian... No secret. I think this is your first time seeing this movie. What did you think about it? How how did you react, especially after seeing the first one? So I never saw the second one. Uh, you guys told me some a lot of cool, interesting things about the second one. I just really saw the first one for the first time recently, and I watched this right after. And if you didn't tell me it was part three, I would just think it was the direct sequel because there's a lot of a uh, connective tissue here. So I thought it was awesome to watch uh, one and three back to back. Now, Dan, what about you? How familiar are you with this one in particular? Where does it sort of stand amongst the other Nightmare movies that you like? So generally, just like, how do you feel about this one? 
I was mostly familiar with Freddy Krueger just from popular culture. I didn't really commit to the series until a couple years ago, which is surprising to me. Um, I watched all the movies in a weekend. And since that weekend, I have primarily watched the first film and this film more than any of the others. Mentioned to Brian, um, I think off air two years ago for my birthday, I had a birthday marathon and I just watched all movies from 1987. And of course, this movie made the cut. So that was a lot of fun. But yeah, this one ranks maybe number two overall for me. I'd have to rewatch New Nightmare to see if that would surpass this one. As it stands, I think my my ranking would would count this one uh, as the number two overall. It's pretty fantastic. Yeah, this one's really high on my list as well. I feel like it's really sort of encapsulating the mood of the times of horror around this time. Like the type, like there are a lot of movies being made that feel sort of in this vein. Other horror movies franchises at the time were having as much fun. I feel we're still sort of mining the best parts of their characters. What I especially like about this movie, and Brian, you mentioned it, is uh, this sort of is the real sequel to the original movie. Now, there was a part two in between, Freddy's Revenge, but it's sort of off in its own direction. Um, a new family moves in to the house, you know, where that all took place. And so I guess you want to say like the presence of Freddy still resides there and is now haunting like specifically just one person. Uh, and that person is like doing Freddy's bidding and stuff. So like it's, it's off on a different direction, doing something else. And this is sort of bringing it back trying to make it more of like a coherent franchise moving forward. Around these days, nowadays, you might call this like a soft reboot even because we have legacy characters showing up. We have addition to the lore. Uh, it's really just kind of like a celebration of what works best at this point with this character and in this franchise. Why don't we take it from the top? So the first person we see is our main character, Kristen, played by Patricia Arquette. We had Johnny Deep in the last movie. We got Patricia Arquette in this movie. We just got future stars all over the map. Yeah, and she's great. I mean, she's we know we all know she's great, but I thought she was awesome in this film. I had never really seen her in this era, I guess. So this was pretty awesome to see. Yeah, I'm mostly familiar with Patricia Arquette from uh, True Romance. That's kind of my reference point for her. I remember when I first saw this, I was like, oh, it's Patricia Arquette, and she's like high school age. Like, that's that's kind of cool. So, yeah, I, I think she's really strong in this. I think she is as capable as um, Heather Langenkamp in, in terms of carrying the weight of this whole movie on her shoulders. Yeah, I, I, I love this character just as much as Nancy, I think. Yeah, I feel like they do a thing with this where it's like, oh, I thought she was going to be the new Tina and she's going to die in this opening sequence, right? But no, it's like a it's like a reverse of the reversal where like she is going to go on to be the main character for the rest of the movie, mostly like it's all sort of surrounded from her and her abilities. How do you feel about the opening nightmare concluding with, you know, it's not necessarily Freddy that kills her, but Freddy sort of gets her to injure herself or attempts to get her to kill herself. She's making the paper mache house. She's got Got the rock metal music going and then suddenly she's like wandering around the nightmare how do you feel about the opening to this one i bought in right away you know i thought it was pretty cool to see and it feels like it belonged in i know they're all in the same universe obviously they have the same character but i'm always afraid mike you've uh not it's not your fault but you've brought me to some interesting part threes on this show so i don't know what to expect you know especially with a horror franchise part three but didn't feel removed at all felt like definitely existed in the same world so i appreciated that and like i said i got that from the jump yeah and i want to give a quick shout out to patricia arquette 
shotgunning instant coffee <laughs> and uh, the Diet Coke, because I can say I did plenty of that in college. But uh, no, I like the visual continuity here. I can't remember how Nightmare 2 opens, but cons- like if, if we can think of this one as a sequel to the original film, I like that this one opens with a very similar dream sequence. You know, at this point, we know what to expect from Freddy Krueger. We know that we're going to be in a lot of dream sequences, and the movie just gets right to the chase, which is really cool. And also, I, I love the gag of Kristen having trouble running down a hallway from Freddy Krueger. I mentioned this on High School Summer Party, but I think that's a really subtle detail in a dream sequence. Overall, some pretty cool visual continuity to tie this movie back to the original film, to have them start in similar ways. The second one does start with a dream sequence but it's like on a bus and it's all daytime and there's just it just doesn't really have the same atmosphere what i really enjoy about the intro to this is everything again they're reestablishing stuff so well there's sort of a shorthand they're crossing over from the first movie by you know reusing the idea of nancy's house but now it's like dilapidated and it's like the upside down and like we're still using the boiler room stuff and heat and and things like that and you know we're even replaying gags like you know not being able to run and stuff so we're almost just yeah getting like like a uh, like a remix or like the greatest hits going on here right at the beginning to reorient us to say like it's going to be more like that first one we're really going to expand and explore on on the look of that as well because this this will be equally sort of surreal if not more so maybe than that first one and something off the jump that i like what this first scene does it explains to us in a very simple way why she would be in the institution she is in later it's not necessarily her fault but i'm always weary of movies that take place in mental institutions because like not a great depiction of mental health usually but there's a reason why all these people are in there that we learn later and it kind of makes more sense and justifies what's going on and it's set up here by the reason our main character is in here yeah like in her dreams i like how we are going to get a lot of changeling freddy in this movie but freddy kind of lures her into the bathroom and gets her to slit her own wrists and when she wakes up screaming her mom finds her and has her committed you know because that's sort of a step that a parent might take you know the last movie i was sort of not complaining but i just kind of brought up the point that like thematically there wasn't really much of like um like a main theme to that one but i think right out the gate this one might be about teen suicide because i feel like that's what they're using all these kids in the institution they all seem to not have tried to kill themselves but they're all in there because they're harming themselves right like one was a drug addict one burns herself with cigarettes one is just super aggressive and like angry all the time one jumped out of a window and is in a wheelchair for life you know like so they're not just there because they're crazy like these feel like teens with real modern day teen issues that they're trying in some way to get across without being too serious you know but also trying to be respectful about it I love this as a sequel. You know, if, if I'm looking at this from, from Freddy's perspective, why wouldn't I prey on, like, a mental hospital? No one's going to believe these kids anyway. I think this is a natural setting for, a, you know, a Freddy Krueger film because it's just there's just so much low-hanging fruit. It's tough to, to not take a stab at it, so to speak. What's kind of interesting about their group of kids in general, too, is they're in a specific part of the hospital in their own ward because it's about, like, sleep deprivation. or They're, they're having a shared nightmare, right? Like they even mentioned that it's very much like the kids in the first movie. We don't know that they're the that they used to live on Elm Street, but you know, I I think that is also a good touch. Like you can't just have them at some kind of sleep institute. That's not scary enough. Again, Brian, I understand what you're saying. Like it's kind of 
there's there's a level of disrespect about using an insane asylum, but it's also a horror movie, right? And so like it conjures up all of these mm. macabre sort of images and things like that. So on the one hand, it's right in a way, but on the other hand, like maybe it's not right. For what it's worth, I don't think that this movie paints these kids in a bad light as far as, you know, having, you know, mental illness or anything like that. You know, they're clearly victims here and they're all victims of something supernatural. So it's not like, you know what I mean? Yeah, like for the, sure. the movie gets a pass in, in that regard because they all are ultimately strong characters, even if they fail in their endeavor. They're all heroic characters in some way. Yeah, I think it gets more than a pass. Like, I applaud it for taking it in this direction. I think it's awesome. By the end, you see these characters all become empowered, right? Like, face and own up to their fears and stuff. And also, right, like, we come to find out that most of the sort of collateral damage they've succumbed to themselves is because of Freddy. Like, he tricked everybody else the way, you know, he made Kristen try and slit her wrist. I'm sure he probably made Will jump out the window or something. I wanted to bring it up because, like, the first one, I think what it was kind of missing is something like this, right? There's just no sort of issue to surround everything with. And I think this movie did a good job finding one and kind of sticking to it. You know, we're at the asylum, and I'm not sure if you guys recognize anybody else in this movie who might look a little familiar. He works at this place. He's their number one orderly, it seems, but it's uh, Mr. Lawrence Fishburne. Credited as Larry Fishburne. Good old Larry Fishburne. Loved it. The fish. Cowboy Curtis. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) It's great to see him here. Like, when I first saw this movie, you know, I knew him and Patricia Arquette from stuff, but then I'm watching this and I'm like, holy shit, like, he's here too? And he's gonna, like, stick around? He's gonna survive? It's awesome. I loved it. He was, like, he cared about the patients, you know? I I don't know how to articulate that, but he wasn't just, like, some rando, orderly character. Like, he was a fleshed-out character here who, like, it mattered their well-being. And, you know, you usually don't see that in these kind of films. I liked as the orderly, he he still treats these kids as people. You know, he still kind of, like, shit-talks with them a little bit. You know, treats them as if, you know, they're perfectly normal kids. I think that's important to note. Like, I I particularly love the scene when, I forget the girl's name, but, you know, the girl who wants to stay up and watch TV, and he's just like, all right, I'll let you do it, but I was never here. You know, like, he understands these kids are frustrated, and they're going through some stuff, and it's not all their fault. And, yeah, I, I love the humanity that he brings to that role, even though it's, you know, not a huge role. It's small, but it's important because of all the things you're saying in a typical horror movie, every orderly will be like the other orderly who's trying to slip drugs to the drug addict, right? And being like, I got the keys to the kingdom. (laughs) This movie does have its nurse ratchet, you know, like there are those characters. Dr. Gordon's the Bill Maher lookalike. I think Dr. Sims is the nurse ratchet. Didn't he look like Bill Maher? How crazy was that? (laughs) I'm sure Bill Maher went out for the role and they're just like, you're too short, man. You just can't. I'm sorry, dude. We got this guy who looks just like you. I'm surprised before Heather Langenkamp even even shows up how well they're re- they're establishing these new characters. Like even if she didn't show up, I'd be down just with these people. I mean, I feel like maybe there's one too many of the kids. Did you guys have a favorite out of the group of teenage characters that we got this time? If we don't all love Kincaid, I'll be really surprised. I liked a lot of them. He's awesome. Not my favorite, but he's awesome. Okay. <laughs> So there's Jen, who burns herself and wants to be on TV. There's Philip, who's really into puppets and sleepwalks. There's Kincaid, who's sort of like the really aggressive, strong one. There's Joey, who's a mute. There's Will, who's in the wheelchair. And there's Taryn, who is the ex-drug addict. I love Taryn. I just love who she thinks she is in her dream. 
Oh, yeah, her residual self-image is, like, straight out of the Matrix or something. It's so awesome. It's so good. What is the line she says when, like, we first see it? In my dreams, I'm beautiful and bad. And she shows the knives. Sorry, I just loved it. Yeah, that's a great moment. They did a really good thing by trying to give these kids more than just one trait, but I still feel like there's maybe one too many of these kids running around. All right, Mike, Long Duck Dong Award. Who do you eliminate from this, the kids then? See, it's tough because you want to get rid of Philip, but his death is so fucking cool, like the marionette. But then it's like you want to get rid of Will, but then he's like the fucking wizard master, you know, so you can't do that either. Yeah, you can't get rid of the wizard master. Come on. So I really don't know. Maybe I just have to watch it one more time. (laughs) I'm not saying I don't like it. I'm just saying, you know, like it's really packed, right? Like it's stuff like for the tangents that Dr. Gordon's going to go off of in, in this movie. Like they're introducing a lot of stuff. It just feels like I was just wondering if it felt like it was overloaded to you guys. No, it didn't. doesn't feel overloaded to me. I, I think they're not super stereotypical, but they do have distinct personalities. I mean, if we're talking about cutting one of them, maybe I would cut, was it Jen? You know, and as much as I love the, you know, welcome to primetime bitch kill does her character need to be in this movie maybe not but i mean again i don't find this movie to be overstuffed the way you do so i'm just kind of picking one and i'm not necessarily like i don't have a problem with it i i feel like more the merrier to be honest i'm just saying you know i feel like if there was a criticism to be had i could see that coming across because in the first movie we have four kids you know what i'm saying now it's like doubled I wouldn't be surprised to find out that the reason there's so many characters in this is so that they could up the body count and have, you know, cram a bunch of really fun, creative kills in this movie. For the the movie's credit, I think that it manages to do that. And it is those kills are really fun. But, you know, I I guess I don't see it being as overstuffed as you do. Maybe they were planning ahead because, like I mentioned in Brian's episode, three, four and five are kind of like this trilogy in the middle. It's sort of like the Roy trilogy. Dan in Friday the 13th, where you have Tommy Jarvis and then Roy. Right, right. Tommy Jarvis, yeah. He's in 4, 5, and 6. We sort of get something like that here as well, because this movie's going to have survivors. Kristen, Kincaid, and Joey are actually going to go on to the beginning, at least, of the next movie. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Played by different actors, but the same characters. I know. (laughs) But still cool. I mean, you know, they're still trying to, like, say... This is all happening in Springwood. Everybody knows about the history of Freddy and everything. It's all canon and everything like that. But it was just interesting to see, like, wow, like, I was not expecting so many people to survive this movie. That just made me even, like, a little more confused as to why there are so many kids, because usually they all die, right? Like, everybody gets picked off. And so they probably had, like, these ideas where we're going to carry on these characters to the next one or something. I mean, even if they didn't, I just know from my research on High School Slumber Party that... This one was kind of as a, a surprise hit in terms of like Rotten Tomatoes ratings. It's like the second highest rating wise. Dan, you mentioned that the sequel was kind of misunderstood at the time. So I think like probably New Line is seeing this and they're like, oh, this is the direction to go. And they're like, fuck it, let's milk this as long as we can with this whole dream warrior kind of thing. Because correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I know the characters continue on, but it kind of follows this kind of a structure, right, as well in the next couple ones? I don't know that it's necessarily misunderstood, the second one. I think it was misguided at the time that they would have a whole new cast of characters. And I think that it plays fast and loose with the rules of Freddy Krueger in a way that aren't consistent with the first film or the rest of the franchise. So I think that this was 
an attempt to right the ship, you know, course correct a little bit. And then after the success, the first one was very successful. I think the sequel was was also successful and at least enough to, to warrant a sequel that they were like, okay, we're going to build a franchise. So this is the beginning of that effort. At least the way, that's the way it appears to me. That consistency between parts three, four, and five are an attempt, uh, in my eyes, to not mess with the formula too much since part two is not as well received as, as the rest. And Mike, part three's obviously your forte, but they're so crucial to whether you want to continue this or whether you want to just end it there. They clearly made a choice, as you're saying, Dan, like, let's try to aim for a franchise with this. And well, clearly it it served well for that because we got, what, four other movies out of this? Not counting the reboot, I assume. There's seven not counting the reboot or Freddy versus Jason. Oh, true. That one too. <laughs> oh, but that counts. You got to count that. That is uh that takes place on Elm Street. Sure. We we, we can count. It. I'm just saying in terms of the, the Nightmare on Elm Street umbrella, there are seven films total. Is that in the same world because like isn't alien versus predator technically in a different alien world is freddy versus jason in the same world as both those franchises sorry for the digression but i'm just curious they were not in the same universe originally and then new line picked up friday the 13th and at the end of jason goes to hell there is a scene where um, jason's mask gets sort of pulled into the dirt by freddy's claw hand and that was to sort of set up like this established universe and put them in the same movie. And between Jason Goes to Hell and Freddy vs. Jason, we got Jason X. Jason Goes to Space. And I, and I think there were a lot of years in between. Uh, there's a whole book on that story, actually, which I have and I've been meaning to read. The, the idea was to put them together, but it took a long time for that day to come. So, yeah, they, they didn't become part of an established universe until Friday the 13th part nine gotcha i feel like you see this from time to time when they when a franchise will get to a part three after kind of part two was a bit of a misstep they pretty much just ignore it like there is no reference whatsoever even though it sort of worked on maybe the one connective tissue was nancy's house right is that like nancy's house is very predominant in the second movie it's the main setting it's where the new the new kid moved in and that's why he's being haunted by freddy it's a stroke of genius to kind of say i mean at the time i think now part two plays way better for all the things that it's supposed to stand for and represent you know no matter how sort of like nefarious or maybe not exactly like on the level the making of that movie was at the time like i feel like it's aged really well uh, socially and everything like that it was a it was a very smart move by New Line. Like we said in your episode, Brian is the house that Freddie built. That you know, and I'm sure as hell they wanted to build a lot more floors to that house, and they were not ready to move <laughs> out yet. So now I don't know what the right situation is with Freddie. I know the rights with Jason and the Voorhees name is just all screwed up in legal battles and all kinds of shit. I'm not sure why they stopped. They should have kept going. Most people thought the remake was a bit of a misstep, but that's okay, man, because you just remake it again just keep going you know i could be wrong about this but i feel like after that reboot of of nightmare robert england's kind of too old to play freddy krueger or getting getting to be too old to play freddy who would you get those conversations are happening i don't know that it's a legal issue necessarily i'd have to do more research i thought jackie early haley was okay but he doesn't own the role Sure, but I think after that movie, the studio's like, do we want to risk another nightmare disaster? Are fans clamoring for another Freddy Krueger movie? You know how horror fans are. You know, if, if they do another Nightmare on M Street and it's not Robert England and it's garbage, it's going to be a, a steep climb, I think, for any studio that wants to do it. 
Yeah, Robert England's going to have to come out and give his blessing. You know, like that's the only way I feel like most fans are going to be okay with it. And even then, it's they're not going to be okay with it. But yeah, I mean, I would I would love if he could do it again. But he's just I just don't know that it's uh, plausible. Again, like I feel like the character is stronger than the actor if it's a strong enough character. You know, like you just lots of franchises recast left and right people here and there, and you know it works. So it's just too bad that me included. Like I am clinging to the Robert England Freddy Krueger. So like I'm part of that as well. I think that's the double-edged sword of Freddy Krueger as a character. I kind of got into this a little bit on High School Slumber Party, but Freddy Krueger is the one who talks and, you know, relies most on the actor's performance. Whereas you could put anybody behind the hockey mask or, you know, inside the William Shatner mask and make it work. There have been a handful of Jason Voorhees over the years, but you wouldn't know it necessarily by watching the movies. That's the challenge is how do you replace Robert England? And, you know, I don't know that there's an easy way to do it. Jackie Earl Haley certainly seemed like the guy I would have picked or somebody close to my choice. That's a big part of it. He's a harder character to cast. And I know, Brian, you haven't seen it yet and you'll get there eventually with the remake. I even feel like that's tonally too serious. Like, it's more serious than the original Nightmare on Elm Street. It's way more serious than the original. And like we were saying on your show, they sort of reverted back from making him just a killer to a molester. Like, they take it like a step too far into the real world to be convincing that he's haunting your nightmares for me. So maybe that's a struggle as well. It's like, is Freddy, does he belong anymore? Or even like, is there a place for him? Are his wise cracks or his breaking the fourth wall or moments of levity in, in this whole like horror nightmare? Are people, do people even want that? Would they accept that? Like, isn't that more of like zombie land these days? Like, would it have to be a horror comedy even? Like, is that an avenue they should explore? Like, that's where my mind starts to go with this one a bit. I mean, that worked for Leatherface, so maybe. <laughs> Has there really been? been and you know i might sound like an idiot for asking this question but has there really been a horror or slasher reboot that's been super successful and by reboot i don't mean like oh the character comes back i mean like a hard reboot where it's just like this is the first film let's reset and the other ones before it don't really exist has that been successful ever halloween tried that a couple times like there are multiple timelines within the halloween franchise yeah that's like halloween's big thing right is that the new one with jamie lee curtis is the true sequel to the original but yet there's been like eight movies between them but even within those movies like there's like two or three or maybe even four timelines i haven't actually done the math right because rob zombie resets you know with his version right Rob Zombie's Halloween, uh, Jackie Earl Haley, his nightmare, and was it the 2009 Friday the 13th that Michael Bay produced? Yeah. Might be the only true reboots. And of those, I think the Friday the 13th reboot is the most solid of all of them. Gotcha. I was just curious because you don't really see things even come out of those, right? Like you don't see a lot of like horror reboots that suddenly spark up a franchise and everything's hunky-dory. Right, yeah. I'm I'm curious to see what happens in the next couple of years because, you know, reboots have for like a decade, I think, it, it feels like, have been the trend. And then we've got movies like Happy Death Day and, and whatnot forging new territory. So I'm hoping that that becomes the new trend. I would like to see more ideas like that. Do we even want Freddy anymore? Like when we have Hereditary or The Lighthouse or Midsommar, like I, I like to look back on these because they're very reflective of the times and stuff. And I, and I enjoy watching them for that a lot. But, you know, I think I have I moved on or my taste a little more 
dare I say, sophisticated than Freddy at this point? I don't know, because you could get more cerebral with someone like uh, like they do in the new Halloween, you know? I think that was pretty effective. Michael Myers still works just as the shape. You know, I also think of the Chainsaw series. Like, I don't really enjoy those movies, but I know a lot of people love that whole new reboot of that entire series. So, Brian, I think that might be an answer there. Personally, I don't think they're very successful because they're lean a little more into that sort of torture pornish area, just, you know, the way I look at it, um, just sort of like shock and for the sake of it, not necessarily for the story. But then again, that's the point of Chainsaw Massacre, right? Like is that's where you get to sort of Jackson Pollock, everybody, because of the franchise itself, like it just lends itself to it. There are these sort of successes. It just depends on one thing is it depends on the box office, but then it just depends on your personal tastes a lot. I feel like that's what it's going to ultimately come down to. Like, did you enjoy it, right? Like, does it work for you? I don't know that there's anybody who could really do something with a nightmare movie in the way Wes Craven would. I think that he stopped making them because he had done everything he had wanted to do with the character, and then he moved on to Scream. He was just such a unique voice within the horror community that I I can't imagine someone bringing something new. But, you know, uh, I would love to be surprised. Yeah, like you'd have to grab someone like Nicholas Winden-Refn, right? Like someone who's so outside of genre filmmaking, you know, and then bring him into it. Because he's even talked about wanting to do Maniac Cop or something. Like he wants to get into the field and everything. And his stuff is just incredible. And, you know, I I always refer to him as like the one pretentious guy that I can stand. (laughs) But he, he... owns it man and like I appreciate him for that but like you really have to bring in someone with a vision because I think you're right Dan. I think Wes Craven said everything you kind of can to a degree with his involvement of it and that's probably why you know he moved on from it yeah I agree very important question for you guys at this point in the podcast what is your dream power Ooh. we're all gonna battle Freddy but we're friends with Kristen. She can pull us into her dreams and we can all fight together. But not only that, we can imagine ourselves any way we want. Uh, but do, do either of you guys have an answer to that? That is a tough question. As the invisible Dan, I feel like it would be weird if I picked anything else. Um, I think <laughs> that that might have to be my dream power, just to become invisible. Trick Freddy somehow. See, I say if I know I'm going up against Freddy, I'm going to turn myself into a Freddy. You know, like I'm going to get the glove and I'm going to pull up my shirt and you're going to see all the souls that I ate. It's going to be a like a Freddy Freddy battle. That's creative. Are you also, if you meet a genie, are you going to wish for a thousand wishes, Mike? Oh, well, I know that's against like the genie code, <laughs> isn't it? And never wish to be a genie yourself. The trick there is you want to, you just use your wish to free the genie. I do like all their kind of individual powers here. We already brought up the wizard dude, but it's really crazy how much he looks like Harry Potter. So ahead of the time there. Yes. <laughs> Feel free to jump in depth about any of these kids and any of their extremely elaborate deaths as well. I don't know what my power would be, though. If you have an idea for me, by all means, but I have no idea. Like Dr. Gordon didn't have a special power, so I mean, you don't need to have one. Yeah, but that's not fun either. <laughs> <laughs> that's like that's like playing a human character in Dungeons and Dragons. Who, whoever wants to play a human character. <laughs> I think that's another reason why I get down in this movie so much is because, I mean, it literally translates to a big game of D&D with Freddy Krueger. It's true. But that was hot at the time, man. I mean, mazes and monsters and the satanic panic around Dungeons and Dragons was a real deal. So, like, I could see that being fertile ground for a horror movie. And I could also see it being a reason why, like, a parent would, like, put that on the list of reasons why they want to 
you know, put their kid in the nut house. (laughs) He plays Dungeons and Dragons. He has no sense of reality. (laughs) We don't get to see everybody have a dream power. And certainly Wills is the most elaborate because like, you know, he cannot walk in the real world, but in the dream world, he can stand. But on top of that, he turns himself into a magician. He's just got like the best imagination, I think, out of all of them, really. I'm sure if we got to see Philip in the dream world, like use a power, he would turn himself into like a hundred foot marionette or something, right? Like something cool. But yeah, I mean that's that's a good one. Or could have you know turned the tables on Freddy and and turned him into a marionette. Ooh, I like that. Do you guys have a favorite? This is such a weird question, but do you have a favorite death or <laughs> sort of kill sequence in the movie? Because they are all so creative and crazy looking. Phillips is probably my favorite, considering how objectively more goofy and ridiculous this movie gets as opposed to the original and i don't mean that in a bad way i I just kind of mean that in that everything kind of gets a little bigger and a little more pronounced and cartoonish for lack of a better word yeah it's amplified for sure yeah Yeah. i think that his is the best in that it is the only one in this movie that i watch and feel like i cringe i feel uncomfortable watching it looks incredibly painful on top of that i've never been a sleepwalker but i know that's like a real thing and like i'm sure people have like walked right off a bridge or like walked out of a window in the middle you know so like on top of all that it's like a real fear of a way you can die in your sleep you know they write it off as sleepwalking but to see his like tendons be used as strings and puppeted like that is disturbing yeah that's the one that i was gonna say as well that's the one really got to me it was very impactful and powerful do i like the silliness of taryn's death sure but you know i love taryn i love like the whole angle here and she's even like what's that there's like that other orderly that kind of comes on to her or whatever at one point like so it is built it's like not out of nowhere but then freddie having like heroin needle hands and putting it in her arms i'm not gonna say i hated it or anything like that but that's definitely a more silly death than the one we were just talking about well it's funny you say it's like a sillier death when it feels sort of less silly to me for some reason i don't know why maybe because it's like a drug overdose and Freddie's glove turned into the syringes and you see her track marks start like weeping or something it's really disturbing again it's earned don't get me wrong i'm not saying it's like comes out of nowhere like not that kind of silliness what's great about this franchise not just this movie but you know the, the movies that come after this for sure is that the kill scenes are kind of like a coffee table book you know what I mean? Like, maybe one kill scene might not get under your skin, but there's probably something else in there that, that will. So I think that the, the syringe death might not affect you the way it might somebody else who maybe has a problem with, you know, drugs and so on and so forth. So I think that that's what's cool about the sequels is that they really, there's a wide variety of kills. It broadens the appeal of these movies for sure. That definitely makes sense. I think there's something going on here maybe being pulled in two directions like first of all i think they want to make the deaths more tailor-made and personal to the personalities of the people right so like that's obvious you know and the other thing is i think they you know like you've been sort of mentioning dan is like freddie's getting a little funnier like he's talking a little bit more he's starting to make one-liners and jokes and they're offsetting the violence with comedy because this can't just be violence anymore it's too disturbing right like i don't think it would play as well i think part of the reason it works well is because you're kind of laughing at 
what is going on. Like, Freddy's literally going to fucking turn his head into a TV with the antenna sticking out. Like, there's nothing stupider, <laughs> right? But it, but it's so fucking cool when he grabs a girl and brings her into the television. And then they just cut to a girl with her head hanging out of a television. Like, there's no way she could have done that to herself. So, like, there is this element, I think, of ridiculousness, you know, of saying, yes, ultimately, we know this is just a movie or you know it's insane so like just so you know we know we're not playing it as straight as we probably could and i think again that might be where the reboot kind of failed for me a little bit is like it's not funny enough and again it doesn't have to be a comedy outright but you know these little bits of levity and for them to come from freddy is very unsettling too at the same time so you're sort of laughing but you're like i shouldn't be laughing Right. And by, by 1987, I think horror fans had like gotten it, you know, they knew what was going on. And I don't know that this movie was specifically designed to terrify so much as satisfy the bloodlust of horror fans. I mean, even these days, you know, if I see something that's kind of OK, but it has some really cool kill scenes and, you know, I'm going to talk about it. So I think that, that that was floating around in the minds of the producers when they were making this. I don't think it's not scary, but I think that they were definitely starting to gravitate towards that idea of like, let's fill it with like some really cool creative kills. So at the very least, we can satisfy that urge. Not that it's not appealing to me, but as someone who just like is not a big horror fan in terms of like I'm not seeking these films out, like I don't really need that, but I enjoy a kill when it feels like it's earned. And these kills like felt like it really made sense in this film to me but i really liked in this film again like the fact that there's like a team here and there's characters we get returning characters from the original but we get some awesome new characters everyone feels like they they have a backstory and it turns out their parents were all those who had originally burned freddy that was all awesome to me and the fact that nancy kind of has to convince the doctor of what's going on and once he's convinced he helps him out too there's like this one scene where they all decide basically we're gonna go be the dream warriors team i'm making it sound more corny than it is you know and then nancy's pretty much like there's a good chance you're gonna die if you do this and they're all like i'm in i'm in like i loved seeing stuff like that it felt really cool to me i don't know why so what you're saying brian is that this one movie accomplishes more in 90 minutes than the new star wars trilogy could accomplish in three You know, you brought up all this stuff we haven't even mentioned yet. So, like, Nancy does show up at the institute or at the hospital and is like, no, she knows what's going on. So she's trying to convince Dr. Sims, I'm sorry, Bill Maher, about (laughs) what's going on. But then, like, there's this whole side plot with Dr. Gordon, Bill Maher. There's this whole side plot with Bill Maher seeing this nun everywhere. And it turns out that that is the ghost of Freddy's mom. And she was locked in the hospital that used to be an insane asylum. She was like raped a thousand times by a hundred maniacs. And that is how Freddy was conceived. Like what? It's so disconnected and left field at the same time. Not that like I'm shocked how well I'm able to handle this information in the middle of all this other information. How did you guys feel about like how they sort of built upon the backstory of Freddy in this one? From going to the first one to this one, like seeing as its sequel, I actually liked it. And I liked that we didn't necessarily see it. You know, there wasn't a flashback. There's kind of the slow burn. And, you know, I guess that's the, the twist ending that ends up being his mother or whatever. And that she's a ghost, yes. (laughs) I actually liked it because it gave a little context for the first film. And again, it felt so related to the first one watching them back to back. I rather enjoyed that aspect of it, to be honest with you. And I liked this doctor. You know, I liked that there was a character who 
was a skeptic, but he wasn't too much of a skeptic. I, you know, I think he really enjoyed the company of Nancy and really kind of learned to respect her and was willing to try these ideas. And once he's brought into the dream world himself, it's like, all right, let's fucking do this. I don't know if you mentioned that, Kristen. Her power is that she can bring other people into her dreams. So I thought that was pretty awesome. Like, if I have to steal a power, I might take that one, theoretically, for this movie. <laughs> but, you know, my dreams aren't as interesting as their dreams, so it wouldn't matter. This seems to be a good decade after the first one movie time wise I feel like we're 10 years or maybe maybe five I'm not sure but it's weird that these kids that like Freddie has to wait till you you like reach puberty to come after you in a weird way (laughs) like because when he was alive he was going after little children right like children not teenagers so that was always kind of funny to me it was just like how are there even kids left from elm street i thought we were dealing with the last four last time it's still kind of cool though like it it is it is a nice detail that makes it less random i'm way more happy when things sort of like put a bow on it even if it's uh just just a drop line or something i think about this movie like on paper and there's so many things about it in in any other movie i i could see not working you know, Freddy's ghost mom seems like a left field choice. And <laughs> having all of these kids have like dream powers. It's not unlike what they did with Dr. Sleep. You know, we, I think we referenced it before. What that does with our established knowledge of the Shining universe is kind of a left turn in a lot of ways. And you're either on board with that or you're not. And and I could see the, the ideas introduced in this movie not, not working out so well. But I think because of the way it's all strung together, like it's it's all very neat and tight and well-written, it doesn't bother me at all. I think it's actually benefits this film. But I could see it not working. You know, like if, if, if it were in lesser hands, less capable hands, this could be a complete disaster. Yeah, I guess that's where I'm coming from too, is like if you didn't have the people we have here, this would be a total disaster like there's just too many threads and too much going on i feel for someone or for for a crew that isn't on top of their game i mean we didn't even mention for crying out loud one of the writers of this is famed script doctor at the time frank darabont oh yeah that makes a whole lot of sense now yeah he would go on to make like you know the pinnacle of stephen king adaptations and everything like that so and apparently dan i heard that he may have written the script that kenneth brenna adapted for his frankenstein well we might have to talk about that someday on another show but i i heard that like he has some amazing unproduced material still out there i don't know about that specific project but i do know that there are a handful of, of darabont scripts out there that were never made i would love to learn more about those maybe with the addition to someone with that that type of talent it's like well how do we get freddy this time well check this out like so the doctor's talking to the ghost of freddy's mom he finds out the backstory and then she tells him that you have to go get his bones and consecrate the ground and bury him in sacred soil so like that's really cool too that it gives him like a mission like now we know how to defeat freddy so while the kids are battling him in the nightmare we have the doctor and hey we got the return of nancy's dad here for a couple scenes here john saxon's back just to die you guys wanted more of him here we have him it's crazy that he buried freddy's bones in the cadillac trunk in a fucking junkyard but I think that's really cool that we have like these two sort of congruent battles going on. We have Freddy with the kids in the dreamland. Then we have the adults outside doing their mission, too. Yeah, I mean, I thought I thought it was awesome. I liked having those two parallel things going on. It's almost like a race between who can defeat Freddy faster, whether it be a dream or in real life. A little Freddy-ception. <laughs> 
can the doctor kill Freddy's bones uh, before he kills the kids in their nightmare kind of thing, right? Like, Freddy successfully fucking kills Nancy. I didn't remember that happening, and I've seen this movie like eight times, and I totally <laughs> forgot. I was like, she's really dead at the end? I was like, are we sure we're not at her dad's funeral? Nope, rest in peace, Nancy. Yeah, they must have really decided that, you know, Kristen's going to be our main character from now on, because, you know, she's the star of the, uh, the next two. But yeah, what a ballsy move to kill Nancy Thompson in this third movie. Her second, her second movie. So Kristen is the star of the next two? Oh, wow, that's interesting. The next two get into some wild territory. By number five's title, you can kind of figure out what's going on. It's almost like Scott Ackerman says, like, I don't even want to hear the title. It's a spoiler. <laughs> we sort of talked about a lot today. We talked about the movie. We went off and, and talked about our thoughts about what the movie made us think and everything. But is there anything that we left out as we're sort of getting to the end here that I didn't mention? I mean, like, there's tons of shit uh, going on in this movie. Most of it's really great. Most of it works really, really well. I only have one other note, but do, do you guys have uh, any other notes that you want to go over before we say goodnight tonight? I thought we agreed we weren't sleeping all night, so. <laughs> Don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. <laughs> <laughs> no other notes for me. Yeah, I think we're good to move on. The only other thing I really had in my notes is that this was definitely the era, man. Like, this was the time, this was the place, Freddy was a rock star. This movie has one of my favorite songs of all time, the Dream Warrior song by Dokken. <laughs> I mean, I started listening to this band recently, and I like them. Like, I like their other stuff. Like, I might just be getting into 80s hair metal <laughs> because of how long I've been trapped in my house over this year. Yeah, I love this song. I mean, this is the perfect 80s horror ending i mean you just sit in the theater and make out over this song while the credits are rolling like it's it's just kick-ass but also about the music in general so we don't get that classic sort of piano theme from the original but did you guys notice who did do the music no no so it is none other than angelo Badalamente. doesn't he do the music for twin peaks he sure does but also, Brian, he did the music to Christmas Vacation, if you remember oh, that yeah. episode. Oh, yeah. Of course. Awesome. Look, I don't know my music men, but that's good to know. Makes sense. Now I want to see David Lynch's Nightmare on Elm Street. You know what? Mulholland Drive, bro. Mulholland <laughs> Drive, that's his nightmare for sure. I mean... That's true. Oh, and you know what I just realized? This is not really related to Nightmare at all, but I just realized that this came out the same year as a very famous Clive Barker film. Hellraiser came out in 1987 as well. I love that both of these movies came out in the same year, because as Nightmare was starting to get rolling, Clive Barker came in and was like, yeah, we're going to do something different. He introduced a whole new iconic villain with a whole new set of powers. And like, I would love to see Freddy and Pinhead face off in the same movie. Well, so I feel like Clive Barker came in and like changed the game again right. in the middle right. of the game being changed. Right. This does feel like the end. So there's only one thing left to do. And I feel like we could get some plugs in here before we go. So, uh, Brian, why don't you let the audience know where they can find you? whether it came out before or after sometime around this episode our collective episode of just a nightmare on elm street will be debuting on my other show on the network um i have two shows on the network i don't count this one mike this is your show no you're unofficially the co-host you know you're not you're not here every day yeah so uh of course i host ps i love hoffman with uh the foodie films man kyle reinfried but more importantly for this podcast i am the host of high school slumber party podcast where means and friends look back at our teenage 
teenage years through the lens of some iconic high school-centric films. So, and then we, of course, talk this film, but the three of us have been on together. Wait, have we been on together in High School Slumber Party? I don't think the three of us have ever done High School Slumber Party together. So it just happened then, but Dan, you've been on uh, High School Slumber Party. This is your third time, ironically. And Mike, you've been on countless times. So you can check out these two voices on my show there, wherever you get your podcast. And uh, you could follow me at my show's page at High School Slumber Party, uh, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Dan Cologne, or should I say the Dan of your dreams? <laughs> can people find you? <laughs> Feel free to always refer to me as such. Yeah, you can find me uh, on Twitter at Dan Cologne, on Letterboxd at Dan Cologne as well. See what I'm doing there. This is particularly relevant for, for tonight, I think. I'm participating in a social media watch challenge from now until Halloween called Hooptober. Uh, hashtag Hooptober, if you guys are not familiar with it. A user on Twitter and Letterboxd called Cinemonster, and every year, I think this is the seventh year in a row, he puts together a list of like rules for Hooptober, and you know you assemble your your watch list based on those rules. Usually, it's you know uh, six um, or seven uh, foreign films, like different countries have to be represented, other such criteria. And so that's what I'm doing now, and I'm logging all that stuff on Letterboxd. So if you guys are interested in, in learning more about that, then you can see it all there nice i'm gonna try and do that next year because uh i yeah i've been watching lots of horror movies this month already but i didn't been like keeping track and i was gonna start october 1st uh but i'm glad you brought that up because i was like what is this hooptober stuff i should know yeah i I like it because it it challenges me to add things to my watch list that i may never have seen you know because i watch a lot of the same horror movies throughout the year so this gives me an opportunity to check out some stuff that's uh, completely new All right. Well, I guess with that, my dream warriors, you are relieved of duty. You are no longer warriors. You can rest easy in your dreams and enjoy no more nightmares. Thanks again. Always a pleasure, Mike. Thanks, Mike. going to do it for this episode of third times a charm thanks again to my guests brian and dan and be sure to check out the next episode of high school slumber party to hear us talk about a nightmare on elm street it's not part one yet because there's only one released if they knew they were going to make a second one they would have called it a nightmare on elm street part one but it's not yet it's just the only one so be sure to check out joey and i over on the tom tom club this is the final month of Hanks for the Memories. So we're going to do the Mr. Rogers film and the Greyhound movie. And then we got the awards and the rankings and all that fun stuff. Please be sure to stay tuned and check out the last of every month, the monsters that made us, Dan Cologne and myself. We will be talking the 31 original Universal monster movies. Finally, for all things Third Times a Charm and all things Cage Club, you can visit cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Write me at 3, T-H-R-E-E, at cageclub.me. Rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Listen to wherever you can find all podcasts. Like So, until next time, everybody, Dennis Caleb McCoy. Three, that's a magic number. It is. It's the magic number. Three, Three may stop at me, and that's the magic number. What does it all mean?